0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. Until recently, fintech firms have usually partnered with traditional banks to provide banking services as opposed to going through the lengthy and costly process of getting their own bank charter. Breaking away from that model, Viral Money became the first challenger bank to receive a national bank charter. The national bank charter from the Office of Controller of the Currency was the first ever granted to a fintech company, allowing Viral to offer credit cards, make loans, and generate insured deposits naturally. We caught up with Colin Walsh, founder and CEO of Viral Money, which began offering mobile-only banking services in 2015. In this episode, Walsh discusses why Varro pursued a national charter, the benefits of being a mobile-only bank, and how to gain scale in an industry that already has too many players. So welcome to the show, Colin. First of all, congratulations on being the first fintech bank to receive a national banking charter, which allows you to offer some of the services that consumers are used to receiving from their traditional financial institutions. I know this wasn't an easy endeavor. In fact, I found an article from I think it was September of 2018 discussing how Alvaro had a preliminary charter approval. Obviously, it doesn't come quickly after that, or it certainly took longer than you thought. But receiving a charter does not guarantee success, but it does differentiate you from competitors like Chime, Simple, Moneyline, and other fintechs in the space. Moving beyond just offering a high-yield savings account and fee-free checking, VARO Money now can offer consumer credit cards, loans, and other financial services without a sponsoring bank, which you'd used before. Can you discuss a bit about why you were so committed to becoming a fully chartered national bank, despite regulations and regulators that continue to put hurdles in your way?
1: Sure, Jim. Maybe it's helpful to step back and you know, kind of rewind to the beginning and and you know why I founded the company in the first place. And you know, I had spent my career in large financial institutions. So I, you know, I had a career before Borrow and, and led the uh, European consumer business for American Express. I led the mortgage company for for Lloyds and and, and the cards and payments businesses there. And so, so I think ha- having had all that experience, it sort of informed my view that there. Is a massive opportunity, and particularly back here in the United States, because I was I was thinking about this a lot when I was still in London, and uh, that there's a huge population of consumers, and unfortunately, with COVID and you know the kind of structural unemployment that's following in its wake, it's just continuing to grow larger, who are really not being served well by the incumbents, and and it's not out of this sort of desire not to serve these customers. The economic incentives simply weren't there because the, the economic model was not working to be able to profitably serve people that just didn't have a lot of wealth and income. And so from my perspective, I felt that if you could create a new bank, that could leverage, you know, access to the payment systems, be able to innovate across a broad range of financial products. uh, It could have the economics, uh, because it doesn't have branches, not handling cash, not doing a lot of the things that were driving up that cost structure. You could not only have an incredibly a profitable business model but you could do a lot of good in society. And so so you know when I set off to create borrow it was very much around the idea that we were going to create this better bank that 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 could actually positively impact millions of people's lives. And so we were also pragmatic about the fact that you know getting a bank charter and you keep in mind this is now late 2015 so there'd been no bank charters issued you know everybody looked at me like I was out of my mind like why you know why do you want to become a bank you know that's not it's not something people do. And so we said look you know let's get into market prove the concept. Let's get the consumer insights. Let's innovate with a bank partner. And we were very transparent with Bancor. We approached them and said, look, this is what we want to do. We'd just gotten big backing from Warburg Pincus, who very much believed in the thesis that this bank of the future was going to happen. It was just kind of a matter of who and when. And so we set up the the deal with Bancor and Galileo. We got our first product in market and started innovating. But in in parallel to that, we started to engage with the regulators. And so it was really interesting that first conversation with the OCC was in December of 2016, and they we were intrigued. I mean, you know, we kind of told them who we were and that we were practitioners and that we had this view that there could be, you know, there's a real space in the market in the national banking system for a bank like VARO. And and they understood and they were very much intrigued and encouraged us to continue through the process, which led us to chat with the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and, and initiate this process while we were putting product in market and iterating around that and starting to get product market fit. But right from the beginning, the beauty of this is, you know, we just, when we got the bank charter, was, uh, there was an early VC who I had pitched in, I think it was like November of 2015, who sent me my original pitch deck back to me. And he said, you know, you guys are the ones that got away. And I looked at it, <laughs> things have not really changed that much in terms of the strategy of what we've been pursuing. But going back to your question of like, why did we want to go down this path? And, you know, what were the challenges? And so I think that, you know, the, the motivation was very much around, Being being inside the national bank system, you can innovate from within. You can really control your destiny. You're not sharing the economics. And as a digital bank, your cost structure, you you have a hyper-efficient cost structure that allows you to do things. And then then there's the social piece of it around being able to help solve really – fundamental problems in consumer financial health and some of the things that you know I really believe have created sort of structural financial inequality in this country and and we can we can talk more about that because I think there's some specific things that I think VARO is going to be uniquely able to solve and I think that we are really clear on kind of the role we want to play in society which is uh, which I think could be incredibly impactful so we'll, we'll talk more about all of that.
0: Is there an inherent benefit to being first?
1: Well, I mean... <laughs> There's obviously drawbacks. Yeah, yeah. Are there I benefits mean, you, as well. you could call it uh, courage or bravery. You could call it naivete. <laughs> I mean, however you want to, you know, but, you know, we were just committed to a path and we just had the tenacity to see it through. I do think that we have helped create a playbook. I think the path we pursued was, it was lengthy and expensive, you know, so could, could somebody else now come in and maybe, you know, take a little bit of time off of that or maybe Maybe not have to invest quite as much, possibly. But you know, again, you're talking about getting inside the national banking system, so it's not as though it's something that is an, an easy pursuit. So I, do, I don't think there's any real shortcuts. And to your your point about is there advantages to being first? I, th- I think absolutely, because I think there's you know we've dug a pretty deep moat. Are the disadvantages? I would say that there wasn't a playbook, and so we were helping to create that playbook. So again, it probably took a little bit more effort, maybe a little more time and a little more money. But I think the benefits far outweigh the the costs.
0: Do you think some other fintech firms will follow your lead in the foreseeable future?
1: I do. I think that the fact that we have been able to validate that you can get through this process and you can become a regulated institution. Um, I mean, SoFi has already applied for their uh, application. I think SoFi is a, they're they're pursuing a different customer segment and they have a very different business model. I could see a lot of ways that the national charter could help their business. I think we'll probably see others as well. And there's also other options. There's like the ILC that Square pursued, which is much more limited in, in what it can do for them, but but it also gets them into the banking system. And I think there's sort of state charters and other, other avenues that, um, that some fintechs will likely pursue.
0: So given the size of the U.S. banking ecosystem, there are really relatively few banking organizations that have even committed to a, a digital banking model. While some will offer digital apps, most have a great deal more friction than a traditional digital-only bank would have. Can you discuss some of the benefits and differences between your digital-only bank and maybe a digital, a traditional bank that's trying to introduce a digital app?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things here. One is the traditional banks, and I saw this you know, at Wells, I saw this at Lloyd's, oh, even to some extent at Amex, is they, they treated digital as sort of an extension, as another channel on their core business. And so they weren't really, Brett King, if you've read his book, you know, 4.0 talks about, you know, kind of uh, first principle design and as opposed right. to incremental design. And, you know, by, by starting Bar, it was very much a first principle design effort, like starting with the consumer pain point we were solving and then building around that, which is just not really in the DNA of these banks. And they're and they're also, you know, weighed down by all sorts of inertia, whether it's the legacy systems or lack of access to kind of good data and, and also kind of the cultures as well and the way they're structured. And so, so there's just a lot of, of swimming upstream. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, I've said often that, you know, a new build is uh, easier than a renovation, and that's why I left a 25-year career to kind of go and start this thing from scratch. But then let's look at the flip side. So let's look at the fintechs that have done really well. And so if you look at, let's just take Square, and you know, Robinhood has had huge growth, Chime has had huge growth. And so what are the things that have distinguished those companies? And I'd say that they've put a lot of focus on design and, and really design of the user experience. They've done some things with technology. I don't I, Square is probably the furthest along where they, they, they've been at it for a lot longer. You know, but I think they've done some interesting things from a tech perspective, and they've done some interesting things from a branding perspective. When you look at their products, the products are relatively narrow. But they've all kind of scaled up quickly because they were solving a problem. But what they haven't done, and maybe Chime is the exception, and I think it's, it's probably more focused on a very particular segment of consumers, is capture the main primary relationships. Because when you start to go towards customers that have more complex financial needs, they're just inherent limitations in some of these narrow solutions that the fintechs have created. So where Varo is really different is that we've kind of gone about it the opposite way that a typical Silicon Valley company would. You know, we st- started with the really hard stuff and getting the charter and building out a more complete product line but what we're going to have is that you know really slick digital experience you know we're really building a brand around consumer financial health and and starting to focus on becoming incredibly culturally relevant at this point in time to consumers and we have just this amazing tech stack that we've built from the ground up and part of the investment that we've put into this is building what i think is the most modern tech stack in the u.s if not in the world right now and the things we're going to be able to do with our data alongside of a much wider product line. So, so you know, again, the jury's still out. It's going to be early days. But now that we have the charter and we've built the stack and we have you know, up-leveled a lot of our design and brand capabilities, I think, what like I said to you earlier, this is kind of game on for us. And so I think it's going to be almost like we're starting to create a new category as opposed to um, sort of being inside and disrupting an existing category. Because in my mind, you know, this is about like real impact banking, like we're going at this in a way that is all about moving customers up the sort of wealth and credit ladders. And so if we can do that successfully with some of these assets, I think it's going to be very exciting.
0: So some of that dynamic of the conflict between legacy and digital, is that maybe why Chase, for instance, closed down their digital option, that basically you're fighting yourself?
1: I think there's been a whole bunch of examples of that. I mean, it was Chase, there was Barclays tried it, TD tried it and pulled the plug before it saw the light of day. Um, BNP Parva, you know, and Bank of the West, had a version of what they'd done in Europe. And the problem with these big legacy banks trying to offer a digital solution is the first conversation is somebody inside the organization, they hire somebody who's got a vision for digital banking, and they go before the Exco and say, I want to spend a couple hundred million dollars to build this digital bank. And everybody says, well, we're spending a billion dollars, you know, it's $10 billion on technology, you have to leverage our tech stack, you know, and so that's the first, okay, that's where things start to go go a bit south. And and if they are able to survive that, then what happens is they get ready to go to market. And then whoever's running retail and all the, you know, branch network starts to scream bloody murder, that you're going to take away my customers. And, you know, this is going to catapultize our business. And so then that becomes an internal battle. And I fought that battle at Wells Fargo many, many years ago, I launched the first online consumer credit sort of home equity business. And we had all sort of the branches were like, you know, you have to double count all the loans that you're booking. And I mean, it was just, you know, so you get all that internal conflict. And then the third thing is then you get to market and then you realize, well, to effectively compete, I can't charge these fees. You know, I have to start paying real interest on savings. I have to, and then everybody's saying, "Well, if you do that, then all of our, you know, our margins are going to start to erode." And, you know, Jamie Dimon faced right. this issue where, when he was, you know, deep into investing in Fin, you know, I think it was in the third quarter of twenty eighteen or nineteen that one of the analysts said, "Look, your income is only up five percent, but your expenses are up seven percent. Why are you spending all this money? You know, you've got to drop. You've got to drive growth in your top line and waiving fees and all these other things are." not driving growth in top line. And so so it really is this sort of classic innovators dilemma inside these big companies. And and again, like I said earlier, this is why I just said, look, let's just start with a clean slate. Let's start with the problems we're solving for customers and we can build a we could build the bank around that.
0: What's interesting is the CEO Lemonade in one of my podcasts said the biggest hindrance to innovation and technology growth is legacy culture. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this earlier that so you're you're probably hiring Both non bankers and and bankers to get a little bit of the experience and all that. How do you build the culture and the innovation? Uh, layer within a company that's brand new
1: yeah I think one of the most interesting things has been around blending people that are just wired very very differently so if you look at the the team that we've brought in and just at, at my senior team and, and I think it applies across the organization you know you have people like my chief design officer who was the guy who helped design Pinterest and Xbox and you know my chief technology officer who led all the technology at Trulia and my chief product officer who was the um, chief product officer at Acorns, and he helped scale that business. And so they're very much wired around sort of consumer-centric design and and iteration and agile mentality and how you use data and and, and tech to to drive a consumer business. And they're sitting alongside some amazing people like my CFO, who was one of the four global CFOs at BNP Paribas, and he was the vice chairman of Bank of the West. And my chief risk officer, who was chief risk officer at Investors Bank, she had global roles at Cap 1 at Morgan Stanley. They're coming out of traditional banking backgrounds. But we've learned that we can all work really well together because going back to this point of, can we recreate this category for the benefit of consumers? And and can we do some really powerful things that are going to move the needle for people who have sort of been left behind for a long time? And I think that's really what motivates us and what brings us together. And it's kind of Bound by that common purpose, and so far it's been working. I mean, it is a little bit of a petri dish of, of you know taking people that just see the world through a very different lens and getting them to uh, collaborate effectively and, and focus on the on the bigger picture.
0: So, in some ways, maybe the length of time it took to get your charter made it so that your mission and your culture even got more ingrained. Very and much so. You're able to innovate for what the future is going to be, and and eventually. You become a team just by the f- sake that you're you're trying to avoid. You're all on the same mission, of saying we're going to get through these regulators no matter what it takes, and show everybody that this was all worth it. But that if you didn't have all that time, yeah, that culture doesn't become quite as ingrained. The innovation doesn't get quite as deep. You're not. I mean, I'm, I have no doubt that over the last year at least, your whole innovation is way advanced of where you would be as a business otherwise, because. You said any day now this is gonna happen, we wanna be ready to, to turn it all on.
1: Well, there's two other things that the time um, did for us. One is it deepened our insights around the consumers we were serving through borrowed Money. So through the partnership with Bancor, you know, and I, I say sometimes that you know, like, We're kind of the victims of our own success because this was like a little bit of a proof of concept, and now we've got like over two million accounts we're moving on to the bank platform because it just started taking off and it was showing that we that we're really solving fundamental problems for our customers. And, you know, our NPS scores are off the charts. You know, we we hear like just the most moving stories from our customers in terms of how we're helping them, you know, whether it's you know opening their first savings account and building savings or helping them kind of stretch their money when, you know, no other bank was going to help them and, and instead was clobbering them with fees and charges and doing things that were really giving them a sense of control over their financial lives. And so I think that was incredibly validating and also for the regulators, too, because we had... A an operating business that was was proving the model works, and you know our our deposits in the last year are up a thousand over a thousand percent because customers are making borrow their primary bank account even before we started with the bank. You know our revenues are up five hundred percent. I mean, so you know the business is growing; it's monetizing very quickly, and so I think all of that was very validating. So to your point, you know, building a culture where you're bringing in diverse people on kind of along gathering around a vision but it is even more powerful when you're getting the validation from your customers and and you're seeing that the the model is working and then the other the other force multiplier has been covid which as awful as as that sounds i mean the this pandemic sort of accelerated something I've been talking about for four years is that, you know, digital banking is inevitable. It's going to be a much more credible alternative. And customers have just, you know, we've seen the sort of a inflection point where people are saying, you know, I don't know that I want to go into a branch. If this is a more affordable solution, it's safer, it's more convenient. Why would I not just adopt digital banking as my primary way of doing business? And why not go with a digitally native bank? And that's where VARO is, you know, so interestingly positioned is now not only do we have a great digital solution, but we're a real bank.
0: We're a national bank. Yeah, and that, that, you know, the insurance and nobody has to do the investigation to say, what does that all mean? But I think you're right. You're in a sweet spot with COVID in that every one of the digital fintech firms that are opening new accounts have just seen amazing growth during this period because people started shopping. They started looking for what mm-hmm. the alternative mm-hmm. is. And some of that may also be because the customer experience at their traditional bank there were a lot of hiccups. I mm-hmm. mean, people that said they had digital banking capabilities couldn't open accounts digitally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and those that, you know, you get into a situation. And one thing that I found when I was looking at your company is that Glassdoor, your employees rank you extraordinarily high, mm-hmm. which is a matter of saying if you have a uniform mission, if you have a group that's all working in the same direction, everybody knows where they're supposed to go the customer experience benefits. For sure. It's very, you don't see many cases where customer experience looks really good, but the employees are all ticked off when they leave. No, something's broken in that organization and it's a big deal.
1: And you you touched on it when you talked about culture and, and culture matters. And if you have people who care deeply about what you're doing, they're gonna put their all into it. And I, I say often that I like to hire missionaries, not mercenaries. And you know I want people that believe in what we're doing because I believe in it. I mean, this is why I, I started the Company in the first place and, and and you can really feel it when you when you meet people at Varro, I think there is a real consistent sense of authentic purpose of what we're doing.
0: Now, how many employees do you have right now?
1: We're just about five hundred right now,
0: okay, so you still have the ability to reach all those people mm-hmm. from you. I mean, they still can take on your enthusiasm. It's not such a big organization that people are so distant they don't really know where the mission is but it, I mean, one thing that I also found was that the company has taken on your personality, your enthusiasm, your commitment. And again, having that long lead time in getting your approval mm-hmm. almost worked to that benefit. Again, mm-hmm. it's everybody saying, you know, they're not going to get us down. It's that that do it no matter what the, the cost mentality that says, you know, we're just going to be there. So that's pretty good. So as you're looking forward and you look at the competition, mm-hmm. do you see the competition in the future, and not just the competition in your segment, but just overall, yeah. do you think this going to be traditional banks, um, other challenger banks, big tech providers maybe who are now building platforms where the solutions are being picked and chosen, like let's say Google checking or something like that. Where do you see What's going to move the market share?
1: Yeah, so I think what you're going if to, I, if I were to predict, you know, 10 years from now, I think you're going to have, you know, several of the really big players that are going to invest billions of dollars, in the, you know, to sort of stay relevant, continue to evolve. They'll become more digital, but they'll survive and, and they're going to continue to thrive. You might see more consolidation, you know, with some of these bigger players. I think you're going to see several new players, like brands that probably weren't even around 10 years ago, start to kind of move into that league table that are going to start to scale up with using new technologies and new capabilities. And then I think you're going to see a, a larger group of these sort of almost like sponsor banks that are partnering with tech companies that are you know, innovating, they're bringing new new programs into, into the marketplace. Unfortunately, I think that the, the group in the middle will struggle if they don't innovate, if they don't either pivot their model to embrace technology, to partner with tech companies or fintechs to be able to kind of come into the next generation because consumers are changing and consumer demand and preferences are changing. And so there, so what's it's going to become the new normal. And this is what I was talking about before, like, you know, what would have probably been mainstream, you know, a number of years ago, like with COVID and, and you know, the calls for racial justice and everything that's happening in society right now, it's just fast forwarding this to the present and, and, you know, consumers, especially these next couple of generations of consumers are. Just going to demand different things from their financial institutions, and so so I think you're going to see quite a bit of change over these next ten years, and we'll see. History will be the judge.
0: And you you spent some time at Lloyd's in in the UK, and you know they they have a much more progressive open banking regulations and, and capabilities. Obviously that your new banking license gives you the opportunity to start pursuing open banking ideas that maybe are even beyond traditional financial services. But that's going to take some fighting with the government, and regulators again, and compliance and trying to to move the needle. Do you see yourself spending most of the time, at least in the foreseeable future, simply in the financial space? Or do you see you possibly get into platforms where third parties may be Contributing to the financial model, the revenue model of Varo.
1: Well, so a couple of things. So, so they already are. So, and we've been an early pioneer, even under Varo Money, in opening open banking. So, when we first, our first app had the ability to link accounts. We were using Yodlee at the time. And now we use Plaid. We early on allowed customers to link Varo to, you know, whether it's to to Chime or to uh, Digit or to you know Acorns or one of these other apps. And so we've we've embraced that, and then. On also, you know, allows us to better understand the problems our customers are trying to solve by having a broader view of their financial situation and, and allowing customers themselves to be able to see all their finances in a single platform. And so, so there's some really interesting things. I do agree that Europe is further ahead because it's been regulated, and so the regulators have sort of laid out some rules and, and sort of a, more of a playbook around how to use the data and how to what are the standards and terms of being able to access data. And I think that's evolved a little more organically in the U.S. And I know the CFPB is having another run at trying to provide more direction, which I welcome that. I think that's actually, I think that's a good thing. So I think from that standpoint, you know, we've been early adopters of embracing open banking and actually using third-party aggregators as ways to, to, to move data in and out of, of VARO. And then the other point around seeing the technology as a platform for third-party You mentioned, you know, chatting with the CEO of Lemonade. Well, Lemonade is a partner of ours. We have a whole group of, you know, we work with Root. We work with um, Breeze. There's a number of insurance providers that are in the Varro app. I mean, Progressive Insurance invested in our our Series D, and and we're going to be doing some really fun, interesting things with Progressive. Uh, We also use our app to provide customers with access to incremental gig work and and ways to earn more income, particularly now with with tools like Steady, Winolo, uh, we just put inbox dollars into our app as another way for customers to earn more income. We have uh, tools to help repair credit, uh, reduce bills. So we're already, I mean, that's another source of revenue for us, as well as a way to really complement the product offering that we have today is using our technology and using our platform. And our customers are very engaged. So when we introduce a new part partner into our app, you see like, I mean, when Steady first came in, they were like, slow down. <laughs> There's so much, so much borrowed volume coming into our, into our, our business. And, and so, so it really is a powerful way to help solve problems for customers using the technology platform and then open banking and knowing, having access to some of that kind of full financial picture. You know, there's just more you can do from a targeting and, and a relevancy perspective to make sure that as you bring partners in, that the messages you're giving the customer are, are highly relevant and highly customized to their personal needs.
0: So finally, we talk about COVID and, and what we've been going through from an economic uh, health and a social situation. It's had a negative impact on the VC marketplace with the investment appetite of companies towards fintech firms overall there's also been evidence that smaller traditional financials may be squeezed out because of the cost of actually moving forward and, yeah, the big players. Do you think that we may end up in a situation where there's quite a bit of consolidation that comes out of this time period, even when we start coming out of the economic situation? As you mentioned, the ability to to integrate different financial services that are highly geared to specific segments that you're trying to serve. The ability to get revenue from sources other than the customer of the financial institution. Those are issues that most organizations can't do. And and as a result, you have cash flow situations for fintechs. You have customer growth situations for traditional financials. Do you see consolidation become even more of a big deal?
1: I do and I, I think that it's gonna to be tougher for folks to raise money and but and I also think that the the lens through which investors are gonna be looking is changing from, you know, not so much growth at all costs, but what's the path to profitability? And if you don't have sustainable unit economics, um, that's going to be challenging. And so, you know, in our case, we were fortunate that, you know, we already have a great group of investors, but we actually 80 plus percent of our last round all came from new investors who just leaned in as they saw the acceleration of our business. We're getting closer to getting the bank charter. And so we had a very successful fundraise, which gives us the capital we need to, to start generating capital next year, where we'll be a profitable business. But we were also, from the beginning, have been very focused around understanding the unit economics and what's that path to profitability. And I think smaller companies that haven't figured that out or really don't have a clear path to profitability are going to have a harder time getting access to capital. But I think there's some interesting innovations out there. So I think that, you know, other more established financial institutions or fintechs are going to be interested in buying some of those companies. And so, so I do think you're going to see a wave of consolidation, particularly if the kind of economic uncertainty, which I don't really see how it's going to change necessarily in the short term, uh, especially given where we are with COVID, that, that this is going to be a difficult year for a lot of companies.
0: Colin, I really thank you for your time today. I know it's, it's busy. You're still a young company that's, that's growing and having to do business as usual for you, at least. And, uh, you know, I wish you a lot of luck and, and, and growth uh, going forward.
1: Thanks so much, Jim. Great to be on the podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Raised a top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor over a year ago. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our new research we're doing on digital transformation, the future of work, retail banking innovation, and the change in dynamics of financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rohl hoffman I'm your host, Jim Ruse. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.